This is where they are building the largest nuclear fusion reactor in the world. Yeah, a friend of mine told me I had to check out this pool. America on Main Street and at the dinner table is talking about infrastructure when 20 years ago they didn't even know what that meant. Today, those towers are an astounding display of wealth, prestige, and engineering. First. It's impacting everyday Americans. I am against the train the way it's being done right now. New York City housing is a scam. It is a scam, 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 scam. The Shard in central London is being officially opened today and at 310 metres tall, it's Europe's newest and tallest skyscraper. Hello, I'm Fred Mills. And this is the world's best construction podcast by the B1M. Hello and welcome to your latest episode of the World's Best Construction Podcast. Today's episode is sponsored by Autodesk Construction Cloud. I'm your host, Fred, and as always, I'm joined by Luke and Liam. Let's come to Luke first this week. How has your week been, mate? Mate, the highlight of my week, it's been a bit of a crazy week, but a highlight is that, you know we were talking about one undershaft a few weeks ago on the body. Yeah, and, we yeah. Were, and I just went on a rant about it. I weren't a fan. I don't like the redesign. This is a skyscraper in London for context. I um, I did the old feedback, didn't I? And I got a reply. As in like, oh. you know, the consultation feedback. I wrote in to the company that's looking after it and I got a reply. And they were a little bit standoffish about my criticisms about it. But... I, I feel like it's a medal of honor, mate. All right. I won't read all of it out because it's just a little bit boring. But um, <laughs> I'm sad to say that I'm incredibly disappointed with this revised design. Quite frankly, this new proposal is just not good enough to be the tallest in the city. Um, and I go on to talk about like you're just maximizing floor space. And I, I reference cheap big Lego bricks plonked on each other. <laughs> Leading to an uninspired crown. I just go, I go in, but then I link to, I link uh, them to like articles, like forums, and even you know an Instagram post from the B1Ms. And just look at the comments, look at what people think. Like it's not a secret. And uh, but no, they did say, hey, thanks for reaching out. We do appreciate your feedback somewhat, but. Uh, there you go. Bit of drama, Fred. I thought you'd like that, mate. Are you proud that of me? That sounds like a non-answer. Thank you for reaching out. We appreciate yeah. your feedback. We have filed mm. it in the bin. Well, hmm. they they do say, um, yeah, no, they basically agree, saying, yeah, as you know, as you've already said, we are trying to maximise floor space. So, well, no, I, I'm not saying that's a good thing, mate. You don't need to just maximise floor space all the time. That's not what good design is all the time, per se, but... Anyway, anyway, not great. How are you, Fred? Did you get up to any any naughtiness like that, mate? Well, not, not like that. No, it's been, a, as always, it's a busy time at the B1M behind the scenes. Lots happening towards the end of the year, but things get a bit quieter in the next week or so, which is going to be nice. We had the B1M Christmas party last week. You know, my, my busy diary also had a Christmas party in it, uh, which was really good fun. We had a big uh, end of year in-person meeting with the team, and then we went ice curling in London, which was fun. Um followed by a nice meal so yeah and i was uh i was absolutely battered by 2 p.m so <laughs> who won who won the ice curling mate oh, i don't know it was the other team 
Mm. I, I was pretty good at it. But... You don't. Rem- you don't. Rem- you don't remember. <laughs> there was a <laughs> <Right>. winner. <laughs> Adam Savage. I go back to Adam Savage again. Our producer. Um, he's a dark horse with the sports. I tell you, he mm. win. He won the darts. He won the golf. Yeah. Did you sneak in any um, non-alcoholic beers like you typically do, Fred? Oh. Or you pretend that you're still drinking with everyone, <laughs> but you've actually got a Bex. I'm just going to move on. Beer. I'm just going to move on from <laughs> I that. I bet you did, mate. I bet you did. <laughs> I, I'm not going to dig for that with an answer. Liam, how's your week been? Good, mate. Good. I uh, I feel like I jinxed myself last week. I was, you know, I was gloating. I was like, yeah, I love December. I love the build up. It's, you know, work starting to wind down a bit. It was all a lie. It's all a lie. Work's turned around. I'm the busiest I've been in months. With people trying <laughs> to keep deals in before the end of the year. I don't know why I said it. I regret it. What is it about? All, all my friends and family are like, oh, yeah, just winding down to Christmas now. I've never wound down to Christmas. It just seems to go up, doesn't it? This mm. week is insane. Mm. Next, I think next week, like you say, I think come Friday, people, I think the emails will start dropping off. The meetings will start falling out of the calendar. It's time to, time to start winding down yeah it's been very mm. dark in the uk sorry to bring up the weather classic classic british man bring up the weather but it's been very dark here like it barely got light yesterday it's the shortest day next week it's just like oh yeah i like on, it though man. shortest day once you're at the shortest day only way is up mate yeah yeah it's Come like on, summer Fred. yeah Summer's pretty much pretty Early much January, you're like oh here we go well it'll be summer in <laughs> july for a few weeks and then onwards and upwards. And then it'll start raining again. Yeah. <laughs> nah, it's all What's right, the weather mate. like down under, mate? Is it still like 40 degrees? And Yeah, mate. Yeah, still hot. I think it was 42 on Saturday. I think it's 40 uh, on Friday when this is coming out. I think it's like 40 on Saturday. Yeah, mate. It's hot. It's lovely, though. Got the aircon cranked. Yeah. Going to the beach. It's good. I like that Liam just has, we, we, I can see Liam's webcam and there's just something flying around that looks like it's from Jurassic Park and he's just not yeah. even bothered by it. It's a big you know, fly, mate. Having, I can't jump. It's like buzzing around not, my head. I can't do anything about it. It's not. It's like a dragonfly. small bird. It's a small bird. Yeah, not fly. Got, Goodness me. What is it with Australia? Bees. I know. There's a lot of bugs here, mate. A lot of bugs. Mm. Like everything can kill you, can't it? It's just it's a terrifying place to live. I'd rather live in a very, very safe, huge pencil like skyscraper, mate. See Liam's even right now, he's trying to trying to kill it. But do you like that segue? It's enormous you like- oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> uh yes, nice segue, Luke. Yeah. Uh yes, brilliant. Love it. Seamless. Yeah. <laughs> Seamless. <laughs> This week, guys, we are talking about the skyscraper that ended New York's Blinez Row, a big 33-minute video that came out on the B1M yesterday. This is the secret squirrel project we've been working on for a very long time that I'm very pleased to see published. Also in the news, we are covering America's $5 billion hospital upgrade, 10 cents dramatic new headquarters in Shenzhen, and this whole thing is going to be peppered with architecture discussion and insight. Some of your comments from the week, it's going to be cracking. Let's get rolling. Let's go. First of this week, we are talking about the skyscraper that ended New York's Billionaire's Row. Now, as I said, this is a big 33-minute video that we brought out on the B1M yesterday. I'm really, really proud to see it published. We've been working on this for a very long time. 
And it's actually something we teamed up with uh, The Real Deal on. So The Real Deal are a fantastic real estate publishing firm in the US. And we worked with their team to bring the story to life. It was really good to partner with them because they brought a lot of uh, access, depth and insight to the story. And yeah, it's it's been a long project to put together, but I'm really proud of it and really pleased to see it published. Whole thing takes a deep dive look at a little skyscraper over on New York's Billionaires Row called 220 Central Park South, which is the most profitable apartment building ever constructed. Before we go into the the details and the deep dive, hot takes, Luke and Liam. What do you think? What a video, mate. What a video. New York, long form, B1M, Fred Mills on the ground. It was really, really, really fun to watch. Um, yeah, so thank you and thanks to all the team. Yeah, smashed it. 220 Central Park South, mate. Hot take, what a building. What mm. a building. Yeah, not just a glass box. Yeah, stone. It, it looks like New York. It looks American. And obviously... It's a kind of like a love letter to Art Deco, 1920s, 1930s, 40s, New York. Works so well, so well, just aesthetically, right? So I think that's a pretty good place to start. Yeah? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Right, okay. Liam, like, you love a bit of New York, didn't you, mate? I do love a bit of New York, mate. Those uh, those drone shots are incredible, mm. man. It's yeah. like the journalist, the guy that we work with, is just superb. Like, it's just it, such high res as well. It feels like, you know, you're there, if you know what I mean. You actually feel like you're yeah. flying around the city yourself. It's just stunning. Um, yeah, great video. Super interesting. Um, I love the, um, obviously, we won't go too deep into it now. It's just the rivalry and the cunning. I know. Tactics <laughs> between billionaires, mate. Mm. It's, uh, it's, it's pretty crazy just how. How the other half live, isn't it? It's just like that. It is completely different world. Mm. Yeah, and it's, this isn't just the other half. Like this is the elite of the elite, the zero point zero one percent stuff. This is yeah, it's a mental, mental story. We're going to get into it, guys. But to properly explain how it came to be, to properly, to properly explain how two twenty really came about, we're going to need to rewind a bit and take you through the context of Billionaires Row and how it came to be, and then how two twenty emerged from all that. So. Rewind a bit to the early part of the 21st century, you've got this rising wealth in New York, which is creating this demand for super high-end luxury housing. I mean, like billionaire pads, tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of dollars. The, the, the demand for that, as I said, is the rising wealth in New York, but you've got these very, very rich people, including billionaires, who are looking for a place to invest, store, and grow their money. And what's long been one of their safest bets is luxury real estate it's one of the surest you know bricks and mortar one of the surest safest investments you can make especially in new york city now a key area was 58th street which is one block back from central park the sort of southern end of central park near midtown manhattan it's near the plaza hotel carnegie hall and it can offer these highly coveted park views and park views in new york can push prices absolutely sky high. Everyone wants a view of Central Park. Mm. But unfortunately, there were only very limited sites left in that area because through the ages, people have built uh, close to Central Park uh, to get those Central Park views. So developers found themselves under pressure to find and secure small sites and then maximise the floor area on those sites and the park views in order to drive a sufficient return from what is a very small plot of land. 
and they pass that pressure down to their engineers. The result of that pressure and engineers' imagination and innovation was the rise of a whole new architectural style called the super slender skyscraper. And we refer to it in the video as an elegant 21st century solution to some very 21st century constraints. And it is exactly that. It's a whole new league of engineering. It is these pencil-thin skyscrapers. It includes the thinnest skyscraper in the world, 111 W57. That's at 111 West 57th Street. Uh, that has a width-to-height ratio of 1 to 24. Now, your average kind of thin skyscraper might be 1 to 14, 1 to 12. But to be at 124 is an incredibly, incredibly thin building. Um, and it just really was just a, a huge breakthrough. Engineers had broken a frontier and this phenomenon emerged, which was the ability to buy newly built apartments in a super tall skyscraper with these uninterrupted views of Central Park. And when that came to the market, when that came to be, the world's wealthiest people just came along and snapped these places up. Mm. Now, we've done videos on this in the past. We've talked about how a lot of these properties were just used as investment vehicles and weren't really lived in. Some people have never actually been to these properties. Uh, and that was a story we did a couple of years ago called Why New York's Billionaires Row is Half Empty, which I think has now got 19 million views on YouTube. Like, it properly, properly blew up. Um, but yeah, this is, this is architecture as an asset class now it's architecture designed for a very specific market for investment and to satisfy the demand from some super luxury people for high-end real estate to invest in i should say it's not all empty there are people living in these apartments there are some people who've made this their their home and their base but a good chunk of it is pierre says second properties uh, part of a wider property portfolio that these people own. So, and there's been a lot of debate on that. We've covered it in the past on this podcast and on the B1M. There is a lot of debate around uh, whether that's good for the city, bad for the city, the tax revenue it brings in for the city versus the need for affordable housing and what's being prioritised and all this sort of stuff, which we'll come on to a little bit later on. But the most interesting thing is that when you look at Billionaires Row now, it is a huge lineup of glass covered, super tall skyscrapers. But you won't find the most technically challenging and financially successful building in the area among all those acres of photos or the beautiful drone footage that you get with all these glass megatools. And that's because it was an altogether more secretive affair that happened down at the address of 220 Central Park South. Thank you for swatting a, swatting a fly during that, Liam. That was, He's dead. I heard I'm, that. I can't look at it. <laughs> Sorry. Mate, flying around my head. <laughs> His other one's looking for his buddy now. He keeps coming. <laughs> so in 2005, a potential deal came across the desk of a development firm called Claret Group. And the offer was to buy out this very kind of unimpressive 20-story rental building that had a super impressive address down at 220 Central Park South. And the proposition was that you could get these sweeping views of the park if you demolish the building that was, that was there and build a newer and taller tower on the site. Now, there were already people living in that building, and that means buying those people out uh, and basically paying them to leave so the building could be demolished. To help clear the tenants, they teamed up with this uh, much bigger firm. So Claret teamed up with a much bigger firm called Fornado Realty Trust, led by Mr. Steve Roth. Now, he is quite a character who we're going to come on to a little bit later as well. But um, yeah, Clara teaming up with Vornado Reality to try and 
fund this enormous project they wanted to get off the ground. Now, the next step was basically buying buying out tenants, as I said, and buying up enough air rights around the property to be able to stack those air rights onto their site mm. to be able to get permission to build to a significant enough height to get the right park views, which is fascinating stuff. So in New York, it's not just the land for sale, but the air above it too. It's to do with these zoning laws. It's to do with preventing certain buildings becoming uh, too high and creating a canyon-like effect. It came about from the 1930s when they were talking about step-back buildings and stuff. But yeah, and you can basically, you can buy air rights from your neighbouring properties. Mm. Those properties will be quite happy to sell you the air rights normally because they can get a lot of money and income from it. But it means they're then their site is capped at a certain height, but the site next to it or the site you're you're buying for can be built taller. Is that like set in stone? Will that forever be the way in New York? Because I was thinking like, you know, the amount of tall buildings that have been built in New York in over the last few decades, since the 30s, right? Surely there's got to be a cap. Surely a lot of these air rights have got to be close to being completely bought up, right? Like, that is the case. You, that yes. is the case. So, uh, uh, yes, which is, again, one of the reasons why Billionaire's Road kind of caps out, which we're going to come on to a little bit later. Uh, yeah, yeah, But yeah. there's only, once you've bought the air rights and sold the air rights, and those buildings are built, and they are big buildings, you know, we're talking, you know, 432 metres in some instances, are right. big, big, tall buildings. Once those air rights are sold, they're sold, unless there is a law change or those zoning areas are recast, redrawn. Now, we've seen that before in different areas of New York where they've rezoned certain districts to enable taller buildings to rise. It's happening right now in uh, Upper East Side, not the Upper East Side, uh, the Midtown East, that's what I mean. Oh, really? Yeah. That's why you've got stuff like uh, One Vanderbilt, the Commodore Project, which is rising next to Grand Central Station, that sort of stuff all happening because it's been rezoned. And what about Chase, the Chase uh, headquarters? Yeah. Two, 270, 270 Park? Yeah, 270 Park, yeah, yeah. That was, again, part of a rezoning law. Uh, Hudson mm. Yards was a similar thing, I believe. I don't know the detail of Hudson Yards, but yes, I think that was a similar thing. So, yeah, it's it's interesting. What what it does create is certain tenants, like there's a the Art Students League of New York building, there are university campuses, there are... Uh, retail units and things who are selling air rights because they they get very drawn in by these enormous sums that are being offered by developers, right? But it then means that their their building is capped at a certain height forever, and they can end up with a very very tall building next to them. And I have to say, when you walk down Fifty Eighth Street, yeah, if, if anyone listening has stood next to literally the foot of a four hundred and thirty two meter skyscraper, and especially when they're talking about these kind of width to height ratios. They just soar into the sky above you. And mm. if you see any sort of clouds moving over the top, they look like they're going to fall over because they're so, so tall. So it, it is a, it's basically developers playing. They're not, they're not playing because they are complying with the law, but they're playing with a loophole or an interpretation of the law to enable them to build these incredibly tall buildings. And what you then have is this landscape, which you can now see on Billionaire's Row, where you've got these little pencils stood up in the air surrounded by other low-rise buildings that can never build any taller. Well, I remember being in New York a few years back and going to the top of the rock, uh, and you can get a real good view of Billionaire's Row from there. But this was at the start of, of, of this kind of phase, this era of New York real estate. 
And I remember seeing fourth. Is it four three two? The the Raphael yeah. um, pencil skyscraper. I remember looking at that, thinking, "Oh, mate, I you know I don't think this looks good. I, it, this just seems so out of place, especially when you're used to a." I, I, like a global language of what a skyscraper should be, like how tall it is, how wide it should be. Uh, but I think that's what actually the video, I know Liam, I think he mentioned this like before we actually started recording, like the some of the shots in the video really conveys like how skinny and how tall and how dangerous these, and I know they're not, but how, how it feels like that. Like they're really yeah. imposing, aren't and they, I, right? I had that impression the first time I saw them. You, you sort of think, how is that thing standing? Right. And like like I said at the beginning, this is the emergence of a new class of architecture. This is a new frontier that's been broken by engineers. The super slender skyscraper is a new thing. It's never been done before. Yeah. It's most pronounced in New York City, and it all comes from these market dynamics and the zoning laws that have forced the construction of buildings in this this size this shape in this location and it really is a unique architectural phenomenon you see you see slender buildings in other cities around the world but this is seriously unique and the next step this is the next step and yeah something you won't really find as pronounced as this outside of new york Mm. Um, do you reckon do you reckon they can go skinnier I I, honestly, honestly, do you reckon yeah. they could? Like, just what Luke was saying, yeah. That when uh, I think it's in the first like ten minutes of the video, where um, the producer, our camera guy, just does the scan from the ground up, and they just look so skinny, mm-hmm. right? Just in comparison to everything else around them. So it'd be it'd be interesting if you know maybe one day they could go skinnier. Yeah, I don't know if I want to be in. I, I look at those buildings now, and I'm like, oh, I'm not sure I could go up there because it looks so slender. It'd be like. Mm. The concrete core, like elevator shaft, stairs, and room, <laughs> right, just up. There is a really skinny. I know it's we're going going off a little bit, but there is a really similar skinny tower being built in Melbourne, isn't there? There is, right? Yes, but again, it's it's slender. It's not as tall, and it's right. not as unique a area and region as Billings Row in New York. Right, that's the right, thing. Like right. this is, is done in other cities, and. Developers are learning from Billionaires Row in New York, but it's most pronounced, most distilled mm. on 58th Street, New York City. Now, this thing about buying air rights and buying tenants out is an expensive process in New York. This this is something that can take over a decade. Okay, it drags on and on and on. It took so long in this instance that Claret's upside was basically completely wiped out. So Vornado bought out Claret and took full control of the project. This is Steve Roth coming in, buying out Claret and taking full control of this project. At that point, another very wealthy man in New York crops up called Gary Barnett. Now, Barnett went and bought a partial stake in a 13-year lease at a basement parking garage directly underneath the 220 Central Park South site. He then also bought a small parcel of land right in the middle of Bornado's development site. Now you might be asking, what, what, who the hell is this Gary Barnett guy? Why has he come along and started buying land on this on this two twenty Central Park South site? Hmm. Well, basically, he got wind that there was going to be this new project going up at two twenty Central Park South. He heard that this super wealthy guy, Steve Roth and Bornado, were going to be uh, looking to develop the two twenty Central Park South, and he was a bit 
a bit annoyed about it because he was the owner of a nearby development site, literally the opposite side of the street, uh, and he wanted to build his own luxury property there, complete with Central Park views and the accompanying price tags that go with those Central Park views. Now, as we've established earlier, no views means less money. So when he found out that this project might be going up at 220 he literally swung into action and set up this little bargaining chip. He went and bought some land in their sites so he could hold it against them in the future. And there was this huge standoff that developed where he was like, well, you can't build there because you haven't bought me out and I own these two bits of land. So if you want to clear the site fully, you're going to have to pay me a load of money. Wow. <laughs> he literally like, <laughs> held them to ransom over this bit of land he had. It was, I mean, the foresight, the pettiness, the... <laughs> yeah, just unreal, right? It's it it's crazy. It's crazy, and it's it's just so different to what we're used to, you know. Yeah, like this in is, our yeah. lives, right? It's so alien, and you look at it and you think, really, like so much money being front. I don't know, mate. I don't know. So it's not so like tactful. Well, yeah. It is so tactful. Though. <laughs> I, you've got to be you've got to be impressed by it. That's seriously impressive. Yeah, it's a very tactful. To go in there to buy this bit of land and just what well, a partial stake in a lease for 13 years that would completely ruin any of their plans and that would allow him to build his own project Which I, thought, I mean it's yeah yeah, yeah exactly right. <laughs> i mean i mean yeah it's it, i found that one of the most interesting parts of the video mm. it is it is shocking you you've got you've got these two billionaires fighting over these plots of land in new york it, it, yeah just hilarious we, we call it a trojan horse in the video and it's very much he kind of Barnett kind of rolled this Trojan horse <laughs> into the site and just left it there <laughs> sitting like a little ticking bomb and then <laughs> just pulled out his ace card at the right moment. Um, anyway, a big old row ensues. Vornado are mightily pissed off that he's done this. And eventually, in 2013, uh, they agreed to pay him $194 million for this tiny, tiny parcel of land and the air rights for it sitting right in the middle of their development site. I mean, that is like three or four times the higher than the going rate for this piece of land. Like, it's an enormous, enormous cost. And then they reached this kind of arrangement, and we show this in the video with a sort of a top-down drone shot, but they reached this arrangement where mm. Barnett moved his building, which would eventually become this mammoth uh, Central Park Tower. This is the world's tallest residential building. Uh, Central Park Tower moved to the east, and Vornado and Steve Roth shifted 220 slightly to the west, so they could both maintain park views. They kind of compromised on what they were doing, and I imagine there were plenty of other backdoor deals happening to get that off the ground. But I mean, yeah, oh, allegedly, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> allegedly, mate. Yeah, I have no basis or evidence for that. Please don't sue me, guys. But you know what I mean? It's yeah. smacks of behind-the-scenes discussions. It's just, mm. it's it's once again the wealth, the wealth that has been put into this. And you look at the buildings and like you said, the other one, which, what's the name of the big tall one, tallest apartment building in the world, residential building? Central Park Tower. That is, that is a meaty tower. And although it is really thin, I actually quite like the design of it. It's just this two, 220, I don't know, it just looks so classic New York. And you can tell how these guys are putting so much investment, money, and also ideas. Like it's an ideology, this, isn't it? Building these towers for specific customers, for the uber rich. And 
you know, I don't want to jump ahead too much, but I it's it's interesting how two twenty park, um, Central Park kind of didn't even have a website, social media, or anything like that. It was they did their marketing in a completely different way, almost like Hermes, right? Where Hermes yeah, is like and this, yeah. This is where it comes in. So this this conversation we've had so far is literally all about just getting the site secured, right. getting the site cleared, <laughs> getting ownership of it all. This this year, multi multi year, multi million dollar fights just to get this site secured and cleared in central Manhattan. Mm. What Steve Roth then went and did was create a building that's very very different to the rest of Billionaires Row, and it really is the outlier on Billionaires Row, and it takes what is already a very extreme region, a very extreme region for all kinds of reasons, from the architecture to the cost to the price of the properties, and cranks it up to 100. It makes it even more extreme and dramatic. And 220 Central Park South, well, we've said it's the world's most profitable apartment building. I've never seen a building like this in terms of the decadence, the attention to detail, the money spent uh, the engineering of it is absolutely remarkable. Mm. It rises 298 metres into the sky, but measures just 16 metres across. And as Liam said, there's that shot in the video from the side where it just it just defies it, it defies your eyes. You can't really understand how a building is standing that tall but that thin. It has a width-to-height ratio of 1 to 18, so it's not as thin as the world's thinnest skyscraper a couple of doors down, but it is an incredibly slender building. They started by excavating 15 metres down into the bedrock and installed three 2.5 metre thick concrete slabs and 142 rock anchors. And you've got to remember, this site is bordered on all sides by other buildings. There's some shots of the early site in the video. They're working so close to the rest of New York. You know, you've got roads, you've got infrastructure, you've got subway lines, you've got other buildings. So they had to constantly monitor all that stuff to make sure that their works weren't affecting the other projects around them. That I mean, just yeah, the foundation work is is unreal. But I think what's most interesting is the floor plan, right? So imagine you've got your, your standard skyscraper floor plan, and I'm asking people here if you if you're an architecture fan, you'll know what your standard skyscraper floor plan looks like. If not, I'll try and describe it to you. Normally, you will always see the core, the concrete core, in the middle of the building. That means your structural beams can run from the concrete core out to the perimeter columns, and those beams then hold up the floor above. Now, I've simplified that massively. Imagine looking top down on a floor plan of a skyscraper, uh, concrete core in the middle, perimeter beams around the outside, and then structural beams running between those two, and then you put a floor slab on top of that. Now, the concrete core is also where you're going to see elevator shafts, services, stairs, bathrooms. It makes for a really good vertical access route up through your structure, and putting all that in the middle of the building means the people in your tower are all going to get natural light because they're going to see windows and they're all going to get a nice view out. But at 220 Central Park South, there was only one view that mattered and that was that nice dramatic view of Central Park itself. So to maximize saleable area, they pushed the core to the back of the building. They pushed it to the southern perimeter to maximize the views of Central Park to the north. Hmm. all the interior columns were eliminated to create these open flexible floor plans and that now much bigger gap was so the bigger gap between the concrete core and the perimeter columns on the northern perimeter was bridged with a much thicker and stronger 28 centimeter thick concrete slab 
they also adopted this incredible mega frame concept along the northern sides. If you imagine, again, looking top down on a floor plan, and this is in the video, but I'm trying to describe on a podcast here, <laughs> you have lots of columns across the perimeter edge. They grouped all those columns into fewer, larger mega columns, which are you can see on the floor plans, they are chunky, big columns. You can see them from the front of the building. They stand out as big, chunky columns. But what that did was enable larger windows, larger balconies, better views. All of that, guys, all of that engineering, that that moulding of the architecture and the floor plans, all of it is driven by the market the building is targeting. It shows, once again, the power of money to shape architecture engineering in the city. It is an extraordinary story. And it kind of, on a positive note, shows what construction and architecture is capable of. It shows what we can build in today's world. I'm um, trying to find a view of this building from behind because like you said the concrete core is at the back and i'm like so is it just you know like is it just a blank back but i think they've kind of got these fake windows would they be fake windows right at yeah the it's not it's not that good looking from the back i actually i've got it on my phone man. when i was there which i'll show you but again you've got to imagine at the back you're looking straight into someone else's building you're looking into um Central Park Tower, pretty right, much. Right, right. So, all again, if you look at the floor plans, we, we managed to obtain copies of the floor plans through the real deal. We, re, we, re, we rebuilt the floor plans ourselves for this video. Mm. Um, but, you know, at the back, you've got the concrete core, you've got the lift shaft, the services, the bathrooms. Uh, some of the properties, some of the big penthouse properties you see have uh, a media room or a cinema room on the southern side. But you've got to imagine that's probably going to have the blinds shut most of the time. If you're watching a movie... It's yeah. going to be a room that has the blinds down most of the time. Classic. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> my my cinema room's like that. <laughs> oh, yeah. Fred Mill special. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah I, incredible. The budget for this book, and this is where it gets even more, I guess, I don't know what the word is. Shocking, inspiring, impressive. I don't know. Yeah, it's all of those. Costs, it's all of those. It is. Yeah. It, and there's a lot of nuance in this story. And you, I think this is where some of the best stories really come from is, you're not quite clear. Well, I'm not quite clear how I feel about it. You can see the different sides of the argument, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, building cost $1.5 billion to build. And interestingly, Steve Roth borrowed $950 million from the Bank of China to get this skyscraper built. Uh, it shows how expensive it is to build in New York City. You know, this Steve Roth is one of the wealthiest people in the world, but he still had to borrow a chunk of money from the Bank of China to get this built. Uh, worth saying, those loans were fully repaid to the Bank of China because this was an extremely profitable building. Build cost here was $5,000 per foot. Per square foot was $5,000. To give you a flavour, the rest of Blinez Row spent about $3,000. And your typical apartment, your typical little walk-off apartment in Brooklyn, Queens, wherever you may be listening to this, uh, spent a hell of a lot less than that. But $5,000 a foot is un real this guy took personal interest in the building every square inch of it was was crafted to perfection you had marble flown in from italy saltwater pools oak floor i mean you name it grand pianos spiral staircases bespoke interior design absolutely insane stuff and what fascinated me when we were sort of exploring the story is the fact that you know and there's a lady in the video pam liebman who we interview in the video talks about it she says most developers will try and engineer value engineer Mm. cut corners try and save costs manage the bottom line 
Steve Roth went bigger. He poured mm. more and more and more into this building, confident that if he did that, he could get bigger sale prices. Now, so that's a bold move. You know, spending a lot on construction front end in the hope that you're going to sell it down the down the line is is a bold move, but it worked. He drove more than $3 billion in sales from that $1.5 billion building. $3 billion. the most profitable condo in the world. Oh, mate. Mate, it's like a, a, a capitalist fairy tale, isn't it? Do you know? You know <laughs> it is really impressive, though, mate. The whole thing is ridiculously impressive, no matter how you feel about it. And listen, I don't think, I think yeah, it, it is a little bit crazy, but, you know, there are a lot of billionaires in New York and, you know, I suppose they want to splash out. And there are extremely complicated and nuanced conversations to be had around this, right? And I'm not a New Yorker at the end of the day, but we've got similar problems uh, down the road in London, right? But this is just on a different level. On a yeah, different level, right? It's funny those those problems, that controversy, kind of is kind of the next chapter because mm. we've talked here about the sales and the profitability. The penthouse apartment uh, became the most expensive residential property ever sold in U.S. history. Uh, it was sold to a guy called Ken Griffin, who is a hedge fund manager. He's a hedge fund billionaire. He paid two hundred and thirty-eight million dollars for a four-story apartment with no garden, no backyard in New York City. I mean, it's just, it's an eye-watering sum. As I said, the most expensive property ever bought in US history. Incredible. Incredible. But there was a lot of outrage when that news broke, and we do a little segment in the in the video about you know, the news clips and the footage and people reporting on it. There was shock there was outrage, there was anger. And this is something that, you know, this project had been it'd been happening, it had been built, it had been done in compliance with the planning laws, it had been given approval, it had met all the zoning requirements. But it wasn't until it broke on the news and people saw just how extreme it had become that the government, the state government, started seeing up and paying attention and local authorities started seeing up and paying attention. So there was this, this big old backlash that emerged on the news of this apartment being sold. Uh, mostly because there was this huge wealth disparity. You know, you've got, we, we talk about it again at the start of the video, there are people living a normal life in New York who are hustling to pay the rent, mm. looking for affordable housing, trying to trying to make ends meet, and then high above them all, up in the clouds, you've got engineers and developers going really out of their way to engineer these properties that are selling for $238 million to some of the richest people in the world. Like, it's, it's very, very disconnected. I, I was really struck when I went this time how I was in one city, but you really are talking about two different worlds, two completely yes. different worlds. Yes. It's it's unreal. And a lot of politicians, when, when this news came out, when the news of the $238 million apartment came out, used the, the momentum around it to kind of resurface this debate around taxes on second homes in New York City. So what they wanted was a a sizable tax on second homes valued over $5 million, which they thought could generate millions of extra dollars in, in tax revenue. Now, that was lobbied against. It didn't happen. Lawmakers dropped it, but they did bring in this newly enacted uh, mansion tax, which was like a smaller additional charge on properties over a million dollars. Now, where the debate sits is that 
developers and some of the wealth people buying these properties and some people in the real estate world will say, uh, look, these people coming into our city, bringing wealth into the city, paying the tax, paying their way, uh, is good for our city because it means investment, it means cash in the city, it means that the state can do all kinds of stuff and deliver local services. And often these properties, the approval for these properties comes with a requirement to build or certainly to invest in public spaces, make a contribution to the local subway, um, pay for some affordable housing in the city, but that affordable housing will often be built many, many miles away in places like the Bronx or or Queens or Brooklyn. So there's a bit of a debate around that. Um, Conversely, others are saying, well, look, if, if... why is the law constructed in such a way that there's money and investment coming in from developers, but it's all going into these super luxury apartments that no one lives in when the rest of us can't even get affordable housing off the ground? Mm. Mm. So, and that's we've had this chat before. Yeah, <laughs> I know, I know, and you know, I don't want to. We don't want to labour it too much because, like you said, we've chatted about it often. But um, I, I liked the point. I think it might have been in uh, the other year's billionaires row video when there's a guy saying, well, it's not really the job of the market to regulate this stuff. It's the job of the government to control this sort of stuff, right? If there is an opportunity for a private business to make money, then it's going to do it. It's the responsibility yeah. of politicians of the state of the country to sort this out. And um, to a degree, yeah, I, I, I kind of, you know, I don't completely agree with it because I'm not, I'm not in the business. But, you know, I can totally understand it. They're just playing by the rules, aren't they? They're just playing by the rules, and maybe it's the rules that need to be updated or refined. So, yeah. And we yeah. talked to a state senator. We interviewed one of the state senators in this video. I was really pleased we got that interview. But the impression you get from that is just how behind the curve they are. And I say this, this yeah. is a personal view here, but it feels like, you know, the, the, the real estate world has uh, really, really broken a frontier and pioneered ways to make these properties happen by skirting through you know, the right side of the law but interpreting it in a way that that it's enabled these things to happen and the state government are just sort of left you know wondering what just happened mm. you know that's the impression i got it wasn't until this building hit the news that everyone was like oh oh really um what oh okay yeah maybe we should tax them more you know it's just right. like mm. yeah the guy just yeah, it feels a bit. Politicians feel a bit like rabbits in headlights, to be honest. Because it's a bit late now, isn't it? Like you know, they're built. Mm, it's built. <laughs> they're, they're built. <laughs> you know, like, and you're not going to knock them down, are you? Well, four, three, two, you might knock down because there's loads of noises that Whoa, come from it. Back and, up. Um, allegedly, I'm only having banter, <laughs> banter, joking. But yeah, um, it's too late, isn't it? And even if you know, just from a design aspect, they're there. So yeah. they're on the city. Yeah. That's it now. But I, Late. Yeah, but it, it's this is why we call it the skyscraper that ended Billionaire's Row because it's it's kind of done now. The mm. market's kind of saturated. There's no air rights left. There's no plots left. So the Billionaire's Row phenomenon is over in New York. I think this is this is the building that capped it out and maxed it out. Um, I you you can never count New York City out, right? Because no. It always finds a way to to pioneer, to break the next frontier, to do something different. Yeah, we saw it with skyscrapers being built over live rail yards. We saw it with the Battery Park extension. We saw it with the Empire State Building, which people thought could never be built. Yeah, people thought you could never build that tall, and then they went and did it with the Empire State Building. 
We've seen it with Benitez Rowe, and we will see it somewhere else in New York. It will happen. We're not sure where, I'm not sure how, but um, in the... <laughs> In the words of uh, Dr. Ian Malcolm in Jurassic Park, life finds a way. guys, Let us know what you thought about this video. Get your comments coming in. Podcast at the B1M.com. It's a big, old, juicy, in-depth story. As I said, the podcast doesn't really do it justice. There is a 33-minute banger over on the B1M's YouTube channel. Free to watch. Stick it on over Christmas and let us know what you thought. So today's episode is sponsored by Autodesk Construction Cloud. Now, dealing with miscommunication in construction can be challenging. Autodesk Construction has come up with a humorous campaign about a mix-up between ducks, that is D-U-C-T-S, the ducks you might put wires in, you know, that sort, that sort of duct, and ducks. But that says here in the notes, the yellow squeaky variety. But I'd also like to say, on behalf of real ducks everywhere, it's also the kind of duck you'd find on a pond. So there's a real-life mix-up here between ducks and ducks on site uh, and the campaign was inspired by this real life miscommunication so it shows the campaign that Autodesk Construction Clouds put together shows how easily miscommunication can happen on the job site and how you can use Autodesk Construction Cloud technology to connect people increase communication and improve collaboration to avoid these kind of mishaps on your projects to keep your ducks in a row as it were the Autodesk Construction Cloud platform helps all sizes of construction business manage projects more effectively from design through to handover, avoiding costly misunderstandings. Guys, you can find out more at the link down there in the podcast description. Now, the Ducks Ducks mix-up sounds like a sounds like a pretty schoolboy error. I imagine it was pretty frustrating on site that day. Uh, but we're just wondering, is there, is, are there any other examples out there of real-life mix-ups that our listeners might want to share with us? Any kind of miscommunication or misunderstandings on site? Um, please send them in. My initials are FM, Fred Mills. Uh, but I was once on site, and someone thought, when they saw FM in the notes, they thought facilities management or facilities manager. They didn't realize it meant me. So in a set of meeting notes, they were like, FM wow. used to do this. And he was like, oh, I chased the facilities manager, but he didn't know anything about it. And I was like, oh, no, that means FM. So that means Fred Mills. <laughs> so there you go. It's not not quite as clear as ducks and ducks. Not quite as iconic as ducks and ducks. But there's an example. Yeah, you know, checks yeah. out. Yeah, it, it does check out. It does check out. I um I often get called Liam instead of Liam when I meet people. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not kidding. Someone called me a high Liam the other day. Okay, just go along with it. Um, oh, who who's never seen the word Liam before? The name Liam before. A lot of a lot of South Americans. A lot of South oh, Americans. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fair, yeah, fair, yeah. fair. And and Indonesians. When I was in Bali, everyone was calling me Mister Liam. Yeah, yeah, I get that. Yeah, I'm actually I'm actually going to drop our uh, senior project manager in here a bit because she had a mix up earlier this year. She was. Uh, pre-event she came out of our offices with a load of stuff under our arms and she was going to get into a taxi to go to our event venue uh and she'd booked an uber which no, she booked a taxi or something but anyway uh she came mm. outside and the, and the taxi driver leaned out the window and said victoria and she thought the guy was saying are you victoria because you know i'm i'm victoria's the lady that booked the cab yeah and she got in the cab and everything and then he started driving to victoria train station which was nowhere near where the event venue was 
anyway, it turns out she just got in a cab driver's car. We just, just wound down the window and gone, oh, do you want to go to Victoria? <laughs> <laughs> and, the cab, and the cab she booked was waiting somewhere else. So she ended oh. up, I'm so sorry, Victoria, for listening to this, but she ended up being a little bit late to the event, I think, or the, to the pre-event bit. Uh, because of because of a ducks ducks mix up, you know, it yeah. happens to all of us. It's easily done. It is mm. easily done, isn't it? Yeah, for sure. It, it is, mate. Yeah, guys, Definitely. send your best construction or general real life related mix ups in uh, podcast at the bnm.com and just say massive thanks to Autodesk Construction Cloud for sponsoring today's episode. You can find out more about them at the link below. Also in the news this week, we are heading over for the first time to Rochester, Minnesota. Why? I hear you cry. Well, one of America's top hospitals is about to get a $5 billion makeover. This is $5 billion going on one hospital in Rochester, Minnesota. Boston Partners are going to work with Canon Design and Gilbane Building Company to redesign and extend the Mayo Clinic. The project includes the construction of two new nine-story buildings linked by a very good-looking sky bridge that goes between the two buildings and then also connects over into the existing hospital building. Each of these new blocks has the ability to be vertically extended further in the future if needed, and this is very clever universal grid system and generous floor-to-floor heights which allow the clinical spaces to be changed and adapted over time pretty impressive project works are due to start in 2024 and complete in phases between 2028 and 2030 it looks good it's impressive it's a high profile hospital in the u.s one of the top hospitals in the u.s but i just can't believe that it's five billion dollars what's what's making it five billion (laughs) dollars you know what i mean killer question yeah, I think so. There's a few things. It's it's hospital, so it's pretty specialist. There's some pretty specialist engineering in there where it can be you know, adapted and increased in the future. So it's kind of over engineered for what it is today. But I think I think most of it must just be the cost of building in America right now. Really? Because uh, yeah, I think that's a huge part of it. Yeah. Oh wow! What about area? Does area come into it? Like if it's Minnesota, is it far away from? Yeah, it's a factor. But I, again, I'm looking at looking at the designs they've released. Maybe there's more going on inside the existing hospital. Potentially, yeah. there's, there's more work going on there. But it's a lot of money, and that's that's the overwhelming sentiment in the comments. Is that's a lot of money? How the heck are you spending all this? <laughs> America builds hospitals like hotels. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> I was just thinking that. I was like, man, I, you know, I wouldn't mind going there for one of my cheeky uh, Crohn's related infusions or something, you know, or even episodes. <laughs> I'm like, a lot worse of places to do it in there. My days, mm. what a cool, what a cool. Mm. And it goes to show, like, when architecture is really good. I know we covered a uh, hospital, I think, that was, that was proposed for somewhere in the Middle East, maybe Qatar or the UAE. And it looked amazing, it looked beautiful. And yeah, I I think we should build hospitals and places uh, in 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 the health industry to be more relaxing, to be more attractive, to be more enjoyable because they're tough places. And if it's airy and open and feels comfortable, it's going to mm. be a lot better, isn't it? Right? Then, yeah. There's a group of comments here. Uh, there's sort of a few on the same line, but someone's saying further proof of how profitable the U.S. healthcare business is. 
Mm. Someone's saying, if you want to know the state of healthcare in the US, just ask why a private hospital can afford a $5 billion facelift. Uh, mm. Someone else saying, getting sick, <laughs> getting sick gets more and more un- unaffordable in the US. Hospitals should be cost efficient instead of wasting money on a fancy design. So, yeah, yeah there is a... Play. But then hmm. other people, other people are saying it does look like good architecture. I have to say it's a good-looking building, but yeah. Yeah, five billion. Oh. What's the Mayo Clinic like? You know, what's that? What's that about? I, I feel like people in America listening to this now are going to be like, "Oh, these British people don't even know what the Mayo Clinic is." I think it's a pretty prestigious hospital in the US. Oh right, Mayo. Yeah. One of these fancy hospital names, you know, like we get here. Mayonnaise, chips, well, good. I don't think it's that kind of mayo, mate. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, also this week, we are swinging over to Shenzhen in China, where WeChat creator Tencent, the tech giant Tencent, is building a new global headquarter building. This is designed by Bureau Olishiren. It's called the Tencent Helix, and it beat out competition. The, the big architecture news this week, guys, has been that these uh, these architects beat out other designs by Zaha Hadid, Foster, Heatherwick, OMA, and several others. I really want to see the Zaha and Foster designs because I imagine they were pretty awesome. But anyway, uh, this year in one, the structured dynamic form spirals upwards and is intended to nod to Tencent's rapid growth. Uh, not quite sure it does that. But anyway, go and have a look at the pictures and let us know what you think. <laughs> uh, 500,000 square meters, this campus. is going to be nearly twice the size of Apple Park in California. Mammoth, mammoth building. I love it. There was a video of it as well. I think it's blimming gorgeous in terms of yeah we've had a lot of glass boxes in china lately and this is pretty different yeah sweet man it's really sweet twice the size of apple park does 10 cent need to be twice the size of apple park does well, it just, it's like it's like a oh we're bigger than apple park it's yeah like we're, the, we're the bigger yeah. tech giant yeah. yeah well i'm not buying a 10 cent you know a 15 pro am i you know, I'm not. I'm not getting <laughs> one of those. <laughs> you know, isn't Apple still the most popular smartphone or in-demand smartphone uh, brand in China? China, pretty sure they are. <laughs> uh, looks looks really cool though, mate. Nice, you know, nice uh, development. It's not my. It's a little bit kitsch. You know, maybe it, it wouldn't suit uh, a lot of cities in now, Europe. You, you but... used the word kitsch the other week, and I I have to confess. I'm going to need that explained to me. What do you mean by kitsch? Kitsch may be a little bit tacky, a little bit out of place. Ah, oh, got it. Kitsch? Yeah. Is it kitsch. like a Gen Z lingo, mate? No, mate. No. <laughs> no, it's just <laughs> what it's is slightly it? highbrow. It? It's slightly highbrow for us, mate. That's what it is. Kitsch is, that, is, is, that it is it English or is it... <laughs> I don't know <laughs> if it's... Design, the design is lit. <laughs> I don't know if it's oh, like Yiddish or something. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm saying it and I'm like just assuming you know, you know what it... Yeah. Um, are objects of design considered to be in poor taste because of excessive um, design or sentimentality? Oh. Sometimes appreciated in an ironic or knowing way. Mm. Uh, the lava lamp is a bizarre example of 60s kitsch. So there's a place for it, yeah? There's a place <laughs> for it. <laughs> we need plain English on this podcast, right? Just talk normally. Uh, lots of comments on this one. People saying it looks amazing. Uh, a chap called Harry said it looks so cool. I wish Australia built architecture like this. <laughs> Same. <laughs> Me too, Harry. 
<laughs> yeah. Lots okay. of guys. Magnifique. Best design ever. Amazing. This is amazing. Shut up. It's so crazy good. Yeah. Is it wow. though? Is it? It's amazing. <laughs> I think it's great. Uh, yeah, it is. It's, it is good. You like, like it. it. You like it. Yeah. I'm in. Big fan, mate. I like that. Yeah. Tencent owns um like a major stake in uh, Epic Games too. I think they own like 40%. Really? Yeah, it's that big, mate. Big Who's boys. behind... Who is it behind TikTok? Is that... It's a different one, isn't it? Ooh, TikTok are just um, themselves, aren't they? But they're yeah, also they're also Chinese. They're also Chinese, yeah. aren't they? Yeah. So Fortnite, 40% of Fortnite pretty much is uh is Tencent. That's mm. crazy. It's crazy. I'm still playing Fortnite. So good. Bite dance. So good. Bite dance own TikTok. Yeah. Uh, yeah, bite yeah. yeah. Okay. Just to clarify. Yeah. They're decent, decent. See how the cladding turns out, Fred, yeah? My old oh, favourite. Oh, here we go. The facade. <laughs> no. This is going to be value engineered. Vernacular. Aquatic. Another big Aqua- word. Aquatic. <laughs> Aquatic. Oh, I'm not doing this. Mate. I'm not, not doing this with you guys. <laughs> guys, get your comments coming in. Let us know what you think of America's $5 billion hospital upgrade and Tencent's new headquarters in Shenzhen. Send in your thoughts, podcast at the B1M.com. Now we are heading on over to uh, Messages Corner. What have we got this week, Mr. Lubli? Right, we got a cheeky little email from Josue Valdez. Right, oh, so I, I hope you pronounced that wrong. I, do you think? I've Googled it. To try Sounds and, like it. I've Googled it to try and see if I'm right or not. So, you know, Josue, let me know if that is right or wrong. Yeah. <laughs> um, he goes, hello there. Will you lads cover the Obama Presidential Center project here in Chicago? Uh, it's 100% worth the channel's time and attention. So, what do you think, Fred? Have you heard yes, of the I, Obama? I'm yeah. very aware of the Obama Presidential Center. It is a very good-looking building. I love the architecture. Yeah, Construction works are progressing. But what I want, I want to do it really, really well. I want to tell the story really well. And I actually want to get an interview with Barack Obama. No, shut I know up. I've set a high bar. Well, that, no, no, I'm not going to shut up. I know I've set a high bar there. I've interviewed, I've interviewed Richard Branson. I've interviewed government ministers. I've been up skyscrapers inside nuclear fusion reactors. Michael Phelps. We're the biggest... Michael Phelps. Sorry, Michael, if you're listening. Uh, that's for my dude. Uh, <laughs> we're the biggest construction and architecture channel in the world. And Barack Obama should talk to us about the design. Or Michelle. I love Michelle. Make it happen. Michelle's better, right? Michelle's a bigger get, I think. It does look pretty cool, but I'll save my uh, further thoughts for when we inevitably do some content on it. So it's on the radar. So I suppose Hostway, that's quite that's that's an easy that's an easy one then, really, isn't it? This week, but yeah. short and sweet. And Barack, if Barack's listening, drop us a line, mate. Podcast yeah. at the bnm.com. He's listening. Well up for it. He's listening. All right. Quality, <laughs> nice one. Easy, wrapped up. Cheers, Cracking mate. Like a, like a Christmas present, wrapped yeah. up, done, ready to go. There it is, guys. Your latest episode of the World's <laughs> Best Construction Podcasts. We hope you enjoyed it. Huge thanks to Autodesk Construction Cloud for sponsoring us today. Uh, get your comments coming in, as we said, and we will see you next week. I can't believe like Liam's actually trying to swap this thing. It's too. And it looks like, like a hornet. Too.
No, it's two. It's big fat flies. 